Sales Tuners, Episode 35, Damian Thompson, Chief Sales Officer at LeadFuse. Buying is a, an emotional decision, right? It's, it's not, you know, we, we always afterwards, you know, intellectualize it and say, well, this is why I decided. That's not, it's an emotional decision. So what is what emotional need are you solving for that person? This is Sales Tuners with Jim Brown. The only weekly show where we talk about the behaviors, attitudes, and techniques that get sales reps and entrepreneurs to grow their revenue from $1 million to more than $10 million in just two years. It's time, it's time, it's time. It's Sales Tuners time. I'm Jim Brown, your host, and our weekly inspiration comes from Kurt Vonnegut, who said, out on the edge, you see all kinds of things you can't see from the center. Big, undreamed of things. The people on the edge, see them first. Joining me today is Damian Thompson, Chief Sales Officer at LeadFuse, a lead generation software platform for outbound sales enablement. He's coached more than 200 sales professionals on four continents in his 25-year career and was actually the personal sales coach to LeadFuse's founder and CEO prior to jumping in full-time. As a world traveler, he graduated college in Australia, met his lovely wife in Vietnam, and has a one-year-old little boy who is a tri-citizen of the United States, New Zealand, and Australia. Before we dive in, I want to say a quick thank you to our sponsors. A big thanks goes out to the team at Octa for helping make this podcast possible. We all know that a better sales process creates a better buying experience, and Octa is transforming the way sales documents are created, distributed, and tracked. Check out a demo at Octave.com. That's O-C-T-I-V.com. All right. Make sure you stick around until the end where I'll give my recap and top takeaways. You can also check out all the links and show notes at salestuners.com slash 35. But now let's get to the conversation where Damien talks about the spreadsheets on spreadsheets, the football nerd in him prepared for this weekend's NFL draft. You know, the first big thing I like to tell people is I, I did meet my lovely wife in, in Vietnam. Uh, she's actually from New Jersey, though, which is always the funny part. So I uh, traveled around the world to meet my Jersey girl. Um, but uh, yeah, so what I like to do outside of work is family. I'm a big family guy. Got a young son, which I love. And sports. I'm a, I'm a football nerd, and I mean a nerd. You know, I can't wait. A couple of days away here from the from the NFL draft. So, you know, it's kind of a, a working holiday. I'll take half a day there and pour over my stats and my, you know, get, put my glasses on and really nerd out over some spreadsheets sheets. That's fantastic. So Damon, as you know, in this show, what we do is talk about the behaviors, attitudes, and techniques that have led to your success in sales. So why don't you catch me up where we are today? So what is LeadFuse and how does someone decide to buy from you today? Sure. So LeadFuse is, uh, we help B2B service companies uh, find leads and generate more sales uh, conversations uh, via cold email. So we're big proponents in doing outbound prospecting. Uh, we, you know, we love content marketing where there's a lot of great inbound these days. Uh, but, you know, if you wait for someone to come knock on your door, a lot of times you're going to starve to death. So you've got to figure out a way to do outbound, how to do it at scale. Um, you know, cold calling is, you know, is great, except for, you know, everyone hates it, right? So no one does it. So, you know, we, we wait until the last minute to try to do a cold calling campaign. It doesn't work. So how do we actually create something that's scalable and automatic? Uh, and, and that's what we built LeadFuse to do. I love it. So you were actually, uh, as I kind of mentioned at the top, uh, the coach to LeadFuse's CEO and founder prior to, to joining. Did you train or, or adhere to any kind of specific sales methodology or system? 
Yeah. So, um, you know, I've been focusing on, I've been selling software for, you know, 20 years uh, and specifically the last, obviously, you know, five to 10 SaaS is the big thing now, software as a service. So, you know, really have, have learned a lot. Have, have, I'm a lifelong learner. I have gone through all the systems, uh, read all the books. <laughs> well, I can't read them all anymore. There's a new one every day, but you know, the, the classics, the, the target account selling and solution selling and spin and uh, even the newer classics, the insight selling and, and challenger sale. Um, but you know, the, the, the most impactful sales training I've ever taken uh, was definitely the Sandler. I, I did the Sandler sales training, and while a lot of it's a little dated um, these days with the kind of the you know going door to door and stuff, uh, the underlying principles of you know sales is, is psychology, right? Sales is about messaging. It's about understanding your customers, and we use words like pain and problem, uh, but really understanding why someone makes the decisions they make was, was what I really took out of the Sandler system. And so I still incorporate a lot of those ideas today, if not the actual process itself. How did you get into this world of sales, Damon? Take me way back. What did that look like? Yeah. So, um, you know, I can do the the old entrepreneur hustle where, you know, I remember in fifth grade, you know, creating Dungeons and Dragons D&D maps and selling them to kids. But how I got into real sales uh, was I was a freshman in high school and I sold newspapers. This is, now I'm really dating myself here. I'm not sure newspapers even exist anymore. But back in the good old days, in the, in the late 80s, um, what you do is, you know, this van would come pick us. We were, I was, you know, 14 years old or whatever. And so a van would come pick us up and pick up the three or four kids in the neighborhood that worked and would drive us out to another neighborhood and we'd get out and we'd literally walk door to door selling newspaper subscriptions. Um, and I loved it. I loved it from the very first time I did it. And I mean, like I got chased by dogs. I got yelled at. I had people swear at me and I still loved it. It was still one of the most fun just seeing, figuring out the puzzle of how to get someone to say yes. And you know, my first big hack, my first big sales hack was realizing that not only did I get compensated better for selling the annual, that actually there was a coupon they could use they bought the annual that was the same price as buying six months and so I just made it my mission that that's all I would sell and so no matter what they told me they wanted to buy one month subscription I would keep on talking until they agreed to buy the annual um, and uh, it was great it was that perseverance and that persistence and that single-minded focus has uh, has carried me well here you know 20 some odd 30 years later I wish you could see the big smile on my face because as a, a former paper boy myself, I totally, <laughs> totally get it. So I, I got to ask you this. Uh, the first, you know, not commission check, but the first paycheck you got from that, wh what did you spend that money on? Do you remember? Uh, I do, actually. I bought a bike. Uh, so, yeah, I bought uh, a Mongoose. Um, I can't remember the name of the model, but uh, I was, it was my first kind of cool dirt bike. It wasn't some hand-me-down Schwinn that my parents had given me. And so it was, uh, I, was, uh, I, was, I, was a, I was I was the big kid in the neighborhood for, for a month or two. I so bet. I didn't, so I didn't lock it up and it got stolen. Oh, goodness. <laughs> no, no, goodness. Another life lesson there. No yeah, kidding. So. <laughs> I, I, I told, I'm, I'm with you, man. I, I bought my first pair of Nike shoes thanks to the paper route. So uh, have, a, have a passion for that. When, when you were starting to you know, get into the professional world of sales, talk to me about some of the challenges, the early challenges that you had to, to overcome you know, early in your career. Yeah. So I think you know, the biggest thing was you know, I, I'm, I, what I've loved, what I, I love teaching. I love teaching sales to other people and sort of been in the last kind of decade really heavy focused on that, both either inside a company or as a coach. And I always loved it because it, it helps me learn as well. But one of the things I love about it is it's what I never got. Like when I first started, 
there was literally there was no training. There was no okay. Hey, here's this sales process that we've tweaked and figured out and refined that we're going to plug you into and we're going to teach you the specific skills you need to go. It's like there's your desk, there's a phone, there's your territory, here's your quota. Go make it happen. Um, and so you really had to learn really quickly where to spend your time, where not to spend your time. And you know, again, you know, sales is. You know, it's, I, one of the things I love about 21st century selling is it's so much more collaborative environment now. But you know, the late 20th century, that wasn't the case. You know, the guy who knew, the guy or girl who knew a lot about their job, either didn't have the time to actually pull you under the wing and mentor you, or the inclination because you were competition to them as far as they saw. So you know, it was a lot of having to learn how to, the wrong way, like banging your head against the wall a hundred times so you figured out what worked, and then figure out how you could then replicate that and do it again and again and again. Do you remember some of the specific things that you had to do? Like you said, bang, bang your head against the wall. What yeah, were some of those I mean, first sure, things? I mean, just, yeah, I mean, cold calling, cold calling, you know, just actually getting someone into the funnel. I mean, just absolutely that, that, that initial, almost every early sales job I had, whether it was a smaller company or a large multinational brand, was very similar. You know, it wasn't, you might, you get a territory, there might be a handful of accounts you were given. This is back in the days when your job was to, you know, there was no AEs and BDRs and SDRs. It was, you did it all. You had a territory and you had to find the customers, you had to convince them to buy, and you had to take care of them once they bought. And so you might inherit a handful of customers, but nothing worthwhile because they've already been picked over by the rest of the team that's there. So, you know, you had to go out and make it rain out of nowhere. And so figuring out how to do that was very, very tough. Um, and, you know, there's this all there's there's always, you know, there's you, you start to learn quickly that you have to be careful of who you take advice from, because a lot of the advice that you buy in the world is, you know, you know, the joke I make online is, you know, it's bloggers blogging about blogging. Right. Or it's, it's sales people keep, you know, selling about selling. Right. I mean, they're not actually pr- practitioners of what they do. You know, it's been 20 years since they picked up a bag and went and sold anything. Um, but they'll tell you what, how, how, how you should do it. And so getting understanding wh- who the charlatans were and who wasn't and again just making a bunch of mistakes but i was lucky you know in the fact that i learned that lesson when i was 14 15 years old uh that perseverance matters and you know that's the kind of one of the things that it's one of the questions you asked earlier but is you know one of the things that i just i disagree with a lot of people on is this idea of you know work smarter not harder i I disagree i think you have to do both and i think it's actually what i learned early in my professional career was even if you were twice as good a salesperson as i was if I worked three times as hard as you, I was going to beat you at the end of the month, right? And this is the good days when we had sales leaderboards and that kind of stuff. And that my, my ego was tied into that being top of the board. And so I learned that you know that effort there's there's value in effort. Um, and in you know of course if you do the absolute wrong thing a hundred times, you're still not going to have success. But hopefully if you do it wrong twenty times, you alter it, and then you do it wrong twenty more times, and you alter it, then all of a sudden you start finding out what works and what doesn't. But most people just don't get to that fortieth, fiftieth, sixtieth attempt because it's just it's too easy to it's too easy to quit. Well, you said it's too easy to quit, and I would say it's just too hard, and people don't want to do hard work, and it's it, it's it's baffling to me. Everybody's looking for the silver bullet. Everybody wants, give me the magic word, give me the template, just give me the words to say. And it just, it just doesn't work like that, right? Because I literally could give you the template. 
but you have to have the feel and understanding of when you're going in, understanding why you're getting them to answer those questions, what you're looking for in their response. It's not just the question. So Damien, this is, this is awesome, man. So one of the things you've prided yourself on is doing this hard work, right? Doing the outbound, which is the hardest job in sales. I think if somebody can master that early in their career, getting told no, 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 over and over, they're going to have some amazing success later in their career. But how do you open up new relationships? How do you create those opportunities with prospects? Yeah, I think, you know, it comes down to, I think the biggest mistake a lot of people make is, and this is, you know, I kind of, my, my little personal message here is, you know, you got, you got, you got a niche until it hurts, right? So I think um, the value of this, the internet, the value of our connected society, the world is, is flat sort of thing is, is that you really can't serve too small a niche. And the best way to have success, I think, is to become an authority or an expert. It's that old Jack Welch, the old CEO of GE, used to say, which I loved um, was, you know, they would, you know, GE, they did battleships, they did light bulbs, they did nuclear reactors, they had grain silos, they basically were in every industry in the world. Then when he came in, he said, look, we're going to take a look at your specific industry, your specific market. And if we can't be number one or number two in that market, I'm going to sell that business. And so I think it's the same way today. Like you have to figure out what your niche is. So if you're in real estate, this is the advice I give to people. Like, they, you know, well, how would you start if, you know, if you were in real estate, I wouldn't do what 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 got the other person, the top achievers in that office there, is not going to get you there. And they've been there 25 years. They have all these relationships. They know everybody. They're selling people all their third, fourth home. You know, you're trying to sell the first one. That's not going to work. And so what I would do is I would say, you know what? I want to be the X for Y guy, right? So I want to be the – I want to only sell houses on golf courses, and that's it. Damien is the golf course sales guy. I don't mean in golf course. I mean only if the house is on the golf course. And then I'm going to go out and become an expert at every golf course within 100 miles of me. Right? And I'm going to become so good and understand – I'm going to meet the groundskeepers. I'm going to meet the golf pros. I'm going to do everything else I can to have to stand out. So when someone has a question about a house on a golf course anywhere near me, they're going to have to come talk to me. All right? Or I'm going to be able to start my conversation with, hey, this is Damien. I'm the golf course house guy. Right? That's, that's what I do. Right? And so I have to be able to deliver value. And I think that's the thing is that if you can't start with value in mind, then you're a nuisance. Then you're a bother. Then all you're doing is if, all, if your only advantage to, to then work to you is someone else is, hey, I'll lower my commission. Right? Or, hey, I'll, you know, I already, we, 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 you're my cousin, my aunt's brothers, you're the banker for my, my wife's, you know, you own insurance or real estate industry, they do the same thing. They tell you to list the 50 people you know the best in the world, then they want you to go pitch to them, right? That's, that's, that's the model. And like, that doesn't really work anymore, right? So I, I'm going to go buy my insurance online. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna do all the research on the house I want somewhere else. If all I'm getting from you is a listing, if all I'm getting from you is a listing, I can go get that from online. But if I, you actually deliver something to me, if there's some value there to me, then, then that's good. And so that's what you do. You find out what that value is, and the best way to do that is, is to pick a target market. All right. And be very clear about the value you offer that target market. And people get really caught up on the target market part stuff is that they have this idea, they get scared about making the market too small. And I say generally it can't be too small because, you know, that if you try to do, you know, be everything to everybody, you'll be nothing to anyone. Right. So you have so, to. So have. let's break that down though, real quick, Damon. So this makes sense if you are the owner or founder of a company. But if I'm just a sales rep and I kind of just got to hit quota based in, you know, granted, maybe I have a territory, but the company's kind of told me what I have to go do. How can I apply what you're saying to my world? 
Good question. So look, the first thing I'm going to say is if that's the case, if you're working with a company, all right, so I mean, this is there's a lot of nuance here, all right? So I'm a sales rep in a territory, depending on what I'm selling. Right? I sell medical equipment, let's say, all right? So these are the 50 hospitals I get to call on. Um, then I would still say the model stays the same, though. Like if, if I'm in a competitive market, which everything's a competitive market these days, right? So how am I going to stand out above my competition, right? So my target market then becomes, okay, maybe it's not a ge- – I've got a geographic market, so I can't change that geographic market. Okay, well, can you pick an industry inside that ge- geography? Can you go out and replicate success? And that's the first way to do it is you say, okay – well, who are we currently selling into? How are we having success with them? What case studies do we have? And if not written case studies, at least what testimonials do we have? What customers like us? Even if they're not my customer, if they're Bob's customer across the way. All right. Fantastic. Now I'm going to say, okay, how do I distill? There's going to be common characteristics from customers that buy from you. Right? And whether they don't buy from you if you're brand new and they buy from other people on the team, figure out what those common characteristics are. And they might be size of the business, it might be geography, it might be industry, it might be title of the person that's there, whatever it is. But you need to create that ideal customer profile. Like, what do they actually look like? And then you got to figure out, okay, well, what does that person actually need? What do they actually want? And the big thing is, is that this is, you know, this is a Sandler thing a little bit too. Like this, you know, and people, you know, buying is a, an emotional decision, right? It's, it's not, you know, we, we always afterwards, you know, intellectualize it and say, well, this is why I decided. But it's not. It's an emotional decision. So what is what emotional need are you solving for that person? And look, if you're saying, oh, well, I sell a commodity good in a commodity market, well, I'm going to say, get another job because <laughs> that's, you know, you're, you're going to have a hard time competing with Amazon, right? So you have to figure out if, if you can't figure out yourself, how, what makes you different than everyone else on that sales floor and you can't figure out what your business is, what, they, what you sell, Right, and you can't figure out how you're different than everyone else. You do. I don't have advice like other than find another job because that's that. It, it's the commodification of sales. This is this is the thing I tell people, and this is the I'm, I'm the salty old sales dog, and there's a lot of people that are fighting this. I'm telling you, the AI is real, right? And the automation of the sales process is real, and there will be huge chunks of the sales process that will not require human beings anymore. Right, the same way this has happened in every other industry. I mean, my son might never, will probably never own a car, right? Because they're going to be driven by themselves. So, like, we can fight it or we can own it. And there are still things a computer can't do. Doesn't have empathy. Doesn't have understanding. Right? I, I feel like we we are the the same uh, mindset completely um, because I literally had the same conversation with my wife that you know my son's not going to own a car. I want to dig into this AI stuff, but but bear with me. I want to get back there. You're talking about niching down so hard, and I'm with you. I just, I'm with you so much. One of my clients right now, because you know, I'm a sales coach, that's what I do every day. But one of my clients, I said, Look, we, we've got to niche down. I'm talking to him about a lot of the things you're saying right now. Hey, let's find those common characteristics. Let's find the case studies that we have and why people bought in this. And they finally decided, Okay, Jim, we're going to do it. Our vertical is going to be, are you ready for this? B2B. Yeah, and awesome. I just about flipped out on them. I just, yeah. So uh, obviously, B two B B two B companies with more than ten employees and less than ten thousand employees. Yep, that's it. So so very <laughs> small, very right, small, nice right. niche. So <laughs> right, right. Damon, you told me at the top of the show, uh, you know, before we started recording, that attitude matters, right? Atti- and, and you know, again, that's one of the reasons why I do this show is because I talk about the behaviors, attitudes, and techniques. But what do you mean by that when you say attitude matters in sales? 
So, you know, one of my favorite things is, you know, you, you know, you, you, you take the attitude with you, right? And so I think attitude matters in a lot of ways. And one thing I see a lot, and there's a lot of talk about, you know, generational stuff and Xers and Yers and millennials and a lot of it's nonsense, right? The older generation always looks down on the younger generation, but there definitely are characteristics you say. And one of the things I definitely notice from, from the younger team members I, I work with or people I coach is, is they do seem a more intrinsically, you know, focused on their feelings, their attitude about their job, right? Rather than just, hey, a job is what you do and you get a paycheck. And I think that's an awesome thing, actually. I think it's actually a smarter way to do it. But what I see the flip side of that is sometimes they let that get them in the way. So they really kind of ride those highs and lows too much, right? And so to me, attitude is saying, okay, look, of course, I'm going to have the attitude of, you know, I'm always going to hear no, right? So the first no doesn't matter. Right? That's it. The first no is when we start, right? But, you know, it's my – I have to understand that if, if I if I go and I do my job and I do well at what I do and they say no, that's not about me. That's about them, right? Now, I have to learn from that and figure out, okay, next time, what can I do better? But I can't be like, oh, hey, I screwed that up so bad. I'm, I have no self-worth now. I'm going to screw up the next one too. Like that fortitude is a big part of attitude to me is to me, you know, the, the other part of attitude to me is, is that you just have to, you have, you have to pick something like for me, I, I'm, I'm a fighter. I like, I like, I like to win, right? I'm a fighter. I want to win, but you know, I have to just say that no one is going to outwork me. That's just, that's what's going to happen. That's my attitude. Like you're just knocking out. If you beat me, it's not going to be because you outworked me. Right? And look, I lose, I lose a lot. I lose more than I win as most people do. All right. But it's not because you outworked me, right? And it's not going to be because you knew more about what I did than me. It's going to be something else. And if it's in my control, I'll try to fix it the next time. But that's, to me, the attitude is saying, okay, that I can control what I can control and I can't control what I can't control. But everything in the middle is fair game. You know, a lot of people talk about the positive mental attitude, always just keeping this, you know, optimistic outlook. But I push back on that quite a bit. And I know that's not what you're saying, but like, if you think back to the concentration camps, the, the, the people that were in there and just woke up every day saying, hey, it's going to get better. We're going to get out of here eventually. The optimist, they eventually died. But those who had a why of what they were living for and what they were going to live for on the other side of it, like it's that attitude and the why they're doing this every single day is that fuel that keeps them going. So I felt a lot of uh, a lot of passion coming out of you there. So I uh, love that. Yeah, well, I think you know, you know, it's it's the I think the I think it's Zig Zig Ziglar. I think he talks about that. Like you know, you can't you, you can't just go out to your garden and just wish away your your weeds. That's right. Right. You can't right. You, you can't just say, hey, I've got a positive attitude. I'm positive those weeds are going to kill themselves. Right. You can't. You got to go out there. You pull those suckers. Right. You got to pull them out of there. You got to fix them. And so I agree. I think that look, I'm a positive person because I think most people in sales, you have to get that thick skin because you're going to hear no a lot. Right. And you're gonna you if you can't motivate yourself, you're gonna have a hard time. Um, and so you do that, but I'm, I'm, I would call myself, I'm, I'm positively pragmatic. Right? So I'm very pragmatic. If, <laughs> like if I'm that. in a bad situation, I'm not going to pretend I'm in a good situation, right? I'm going to know I'm in a bad situation. And I think that also happens, especially if you work in enterprise sales for a while, right? You want to get paranoid, go work in enterprise sales because you, you know, when you're dealing one-to-one, like, you know, most of our sales are now in our current company is we're dealing with the business owner. It's a, you know, maybe this senior person on the team, but for the most part, the person we're talking to is going to make the decision. All right. And the price points much less, but you know, my days in enterprise, that's not the case, right? You're dealing with 12 people and there's 20 people behind them. You don't ever get to see. All right. And just the craziest things happen. And now it's about people's internal political agendas and, you know, who's going to get 
promotion of the other. It really has nothing to do with the solution you're selling a lot of times. And so you'll get some cynicism when you when you when you move into that world, which actually is a healthy to a, to, a, to an extent, right? This isn't knocking on the door selling newspapers. So you have to learn a lot of new skills about how to navigate political waters and how to do these kind of things and how to find influencers and how to internally coach people to sell and 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 think about political impact and you know learn my favorite my absolute favorite lesson I tell everyone that comes you know, when we talk to is that you know that at the end of the day the secret of sales is understanding that all interest is self-interest all right so you know they don't buy because it saves their company money they buy because it makes them look good to their boss by saving their company money right and so like understanding what their self-interest is makes a huge impact and that's not a hey the world is rosy and sunny and puppy dog tails and rainbows right it's understanding that you know there is good and bad in the world and how you navigate the two is up to you <laughs> you're so right now you you've talked about some of these changes that have happened in the sales world but you know you've been selling selling software for a while now it it feels as though Damien, the, the playbook has been written, right? So there's a discovery call or there's a lead, there's a discovery call, there's a demo and there's a pitch proposal close, right? Like, is that not the case for, for you guys and for most, most software companies? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, you know, it's like all playbooks. I think there's, there's that, you said a word earlier about templates, right? And so at least I've talked about specific in our business is that, you know, we have this pretty long blog post with some videos that talking about how once something becomes a template on the internet, you can almost guarantee its efficacy is almost zero, Right, because everyone's going to get it. Right, and so what makes something successful is the fact that you're zigging when they're zagging. So as soon as something becomes "quote unquote," you know, you know, best practice. Right, it's probably not best practice anymore. And so, yes, I think there is a standard, you know, starting point in software. You know, discover. You know, you have some sort of process where you discover, talk to the person, then you figure out if they're a good fit, and if they're a good fit, you show them a demonstration, and if they're a good fit, then you send them a proposal or whatever. If you have a proposal or not, doesn't matter. Here's the problem: the world's changing very fast, um, and what works in one industry doesn't work in another industry. What works for one buying type doesn't work for another buying type. For example, when you're selling to enterprise, I'm going to enterprise here, because like, you know, people that you engage with to begin with a lot of times, their job, even if they're not in procurement, even if they're in procurement, they're definitely their job is just to be a professional buyer. But even if they're not in procurement, how they act is different, right? What their self-interest is every day is, hey, I'm now heading up, spearheading this project to find a new CRM solution, let's say, right? Well, I'm planning in my mind to budget the next 100 hours or the next quarter to do this. So, you know, they're, they, they're happy to spend that kind of time to do that, right? If I'm talking, like in our business, we talk to business owners who need more leads for their business, who are afraid they're not getting enough leads in their business. They don't want to spend 100 hours making a decision, right? They don't have 100 hours to make a decision. So those two sales processes have to be very different, and you know, so we implemented the discovery call, demo, you know, closing call kind of thing. And it, you know, it, it hurt our business because that's not how our buyers want to buy. What they want to do is they want to be able to go see a demonstration of the tool on their own time, right, when they want to. So we've gone away from live demos to we do a recorded demo. And we have two versions. We have a short version, less than 10 minutes, and a longer version. It's a little over 20 minutes. Then we do weekly webinars where they can show up and actually ask live questions if they want. And the, in the demos where we do it, we actually, there's live chat there during business hours. So they can watch a demo and ask a question right, right in the chat. And, you know, we're seeing amazing uptake on this because that's how most of our customers want to buy. The ones that still want to talk to someone, We'll talk to them. 
right? They can call us. We'll, we'll, we'll request they call us. We'll get their phone number. We'll call them. We ask for their phone number still. But instead of creating these roadblocks of we've got to qualify them first, then they've got to sign up for a live demo, then they have to show up for a live demo, and there's a 50% no-show rate. And like all of a sudden, you're creating all these roadblocks because that's the best practice playbook way to sell software. Um, and so it's, you know, I, I'm going to get my soapbox here again, but you know, the other thing is, is if you have a belief like I do that automation is coming, all right, that it's it's coming, then you need to figure out where you can do that in your business as well. So, you know, it's the thing about, you know, we talked a little pre-show about, you know, 10 years ago, your job as a sales rep was to educate your audience, so educate your market. Well, obviously, that's not your job anyway. It's the internet that does that. So now your job is to figure out, okay, how do I use the same tool that my customer is using to educate themselves? How do I use that tool to educate myself about them? about their industry, about what's important to them, what their self-interest might be, right? And then also, how do I use that tool, that internet, to automate some of the remedial tasks that I shouldn't have to do myself so I can focus more on having those important conversations when they matter? I'm just going to ask this. Who do you guys use for your chatbot? Uh, so we're using intercom right now. Okay. Um, just because we, we looked at them all. Um, you know, it's one of those interesting things that we, you know, I, I, I lovingly call myself a sass hole. <laughs> I, I, I love playing with new software tools. We're always looking at new ones. We tried them all. Um, but at the end of the day, we do a lot of our, because we have a software company, we do a lot of our in-app metrics using intercom. Um, so like we see like last login and we can find this kind of really cool information. And because of that, we base like some automated marketing triggers on that. So they get certain types of messages at certain types of times, depending on what they're doing inside the tool. So it just made the most sense to go ahead and keep our communication there as well. Yeah, no, I love it. I, the reason I ask is if you don't know, uh, David Cancel over at Drift, he's been yeah. huge on Twitter lately about this whole thing. He's like, look, buyers don't want to buy the way you want to sell to them anymore. What can you do with the chatbot? Could the chatbot actually answer a lot of the questions they have and they can answer it at two in the morning when your salespeople aren't working or they're out get drinking with uh, clients they think are going to sign million dollar deals that never do. So I, I'm fascinated by that and that's why I wanted to, to ask. So one of the things that I, I've really been interested in what you have said to me is you question everything. Even to the point that just because you're having success doesn't mean you're doing it the right way. How, how much is too much? That's that's a great question. Yeah, the whole you know analysis paralysis stuff. Um, yeah, look, I think there there has to be. I think this is some of that innate, you know, maybe it's the same of that innate paranoia and cynicism I got from selling enterprise for a decade. But you know, you have to, you know, it's the Andy Grove from Intel. You know, the only the paranoid survive. And so even when you're doing good things and you're having success, I think one of the things that makes most good salespeople, great salespeople, great salespeople, or good entrepreneurs, good entrepreneurs is, is there's always this little twinge of dissatisfaction. So even when you are top of the leaderboard, even when it is the biggest commission check you've ever received, even when you're going to President's Club, whatever your metric is for success, right, your business is growing 100% year on year, whatever those metrics are, there, there always needs to be that little bit of like, well, could it be better? Right? Um, because you know, you know, and again, I, I the world is changing so rapidly, and it sounds cliche when you say that, but my gosh, it is. Like businesses that were huge years ago are gone. Like they're just gone. They don't exist anymore, right? Twitter was my favorite social media tool of all time. No one sure it's gonna be around in twelve months from now, right? And so, like, if you 
you know, when you're doing well, you know, I think there's you, you owe it to yourself, to your family, to your business to make sure that you're doing as well as possible, because who knows what's going to happen in five years? You know, that that my, my favorite old analogy was, you know, that. You know, the buggy whip manufacturers, you know, the, the, the richest people in the early 20th century, you know, they didn't see the, the, the car coming, right? And even when the car came, they didn't really think it was going to replace horses and the horse-drawn ca- carriages. And all of a sudden, one day they're looking up and they're saying, well, what happened? We were the greatest buggy whip manufacturing company in the world. That's happening now, but it's not taking 20 years for that to happen. Right? It's happening in a matter of, you know, years. So you, when you're doing well, the question is, could I be doing better? And I think the best way is that if you're doing poorly – you know, if you're not doing what you want to be doing, then it's easy. Then you try everything you can to make it better. All right. When you're doing well, that's when you say, okay, now it's time to just do some split testing. Let's figure out that let's find parts of the process that we think we might be able to do better. And let's only test that one thing. Right. Let's not make wholesale changes to everything. Let's not try to pull seven levers at the same time. Right. Let's figure out one area we want to focus on. And I think this comes down to, again, you know, I talked about earlier, I'm, I'm a nerd. I'm at, the, I'm at my core, I'm a nerd. Right. So I, I metrics matter to me. And the, re, the reason I was so passionate about sales, right, I went to get a computer science degree. The reason why I abandoned it for sales really quickly was, is I love the idea of having very clear indications of whether I'm successful or not. Right. I can measure it. How much revenue did I book last quarter, last month, this week, whatever those, whatever that timeline is, right? Am I doing better comparatively to myself, to the industry, to my peers, whatever? But there's numbers there, right? I can get analytical about it. You know, okay, well, I'm doing great, but what can I do better? You know, what's my closing percentage? How many, how many contacts does it take for me to get an appointment? It's funny, Damien. Kind of you, right? you talked about you know being a football nerd earlier on. And to use a football analogy, I had Steve Richard on the show a couple of weeks ago. And he said, look at, look at Bill Belichick and look at Nick Saban. They win the Super Bowl or they win the college football championship. And, and when they do the post-game interview on the field, they're talking about immediately getting back to work or immediately what they did wrong. Right. And they are at the top of their profession. This is, it's just so true and so fascinating. Damien, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, it's going to be time for the money round. So you don't go away. And sales tuners, you don't go away either. We'll be right back. Sales tuners, Octave has built a sales productivity platform that streamlines the workflow for creating and managing your sales documents. Everything from presentations and quotes to all of your proposals and contracts. They can pull data from your CRM, CPQ, and ERP systems, saving you time and accelerating each sales opportunity. Octave has been around since 2010 and now serves more than 400 organizations. I'm talking global enterprises, guys, like GE and Siemens, national brands like Angie's List and FedEx Office, and even industry innovators like Double Dutch and Lindemood Bell. You've got to check them out. Go to Octave.com. That's O-C-T-I-V.com to learn more. And hey, during your demo, be sure to tell them you heard about them on the Sales Tuners podcast. We're back and it's time for the money round. Damien, are you ready for the money round? I'm ready. What's the one thing that has contributed most to your transformation from normal to exceptional? Question everything. You've kind of made that obvious today. I like that. I go deeper, but I think I've (laughs) talked about it quite a few times. So yeah. So if you were to start over today in sales, what would you tell your 22-year-old self to spend the next 30 days doing? Oh, that's a good one. Um, so, you know, originally I would, I would say what I always tell my 22 year old self is, you know, talk less, listen more. 
I mean, I, I, I know less now than I did when I was 22, according to my 22 year old self. I knew, I knew everything then. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's very much important to not just in sales situations, but across the board, uh, the, the every, every exceptional person I meet, whether they're exceptional in business or whatever they are, it's amazing that, you know, they talk far less than everyone else around them. They ask it pointed questions. They're interested. They do follow up, but you know, they're not, they're not performing. They're not tap dancing. Right? And I think a lot of times, me personally, I have a, 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 a predilection to perform sometimes. So, you know, especially my younger self would be like, you know, just, just, just shut the mouth a little bit more. I know less. Th- I, <laughs> you said I know less now than I did at 22. I love that. That's great. Two-part question here for you. Which phrase describes you best and why? I love to win or I hate to lose? I love to win. So I, I don't hate I don't hate to lose because of the negative. I don't I, like we talked about positive before. I just like, I just love winning. I just it's I'm not gonna lie. I'm a I'm a big fan of the the feeling the dopamine rush I get from winning. Um, you know I'm a I'm a good winner. I'm a horrible loser. So, <laughs> Damien, what's a book that you've read multiple times or always find yourself recommending to others? First Break All the Rules by Marcus Buckingham. Um, so this is the lesser known book. He wrote the Strengths Finder book series years later that everyone loves. Um, but it was his earlier book, and it's fascinating to me. It's the first book I read when I became a sales manager because, again, like no one pulled you aside and said, okay, you're the top sales guy. Now you're the sales manager. Here's how you, be, here's how you are a good sales manager. They say, hey, you're the top sales rep. Now you're a sales manager. And so what it was was it boiled down to this Gallup organization that did all these you know, in, you know, tests and polls across – a bunch of different industries across the world. And they narrowed everything down to like the 12 or 13, I can't remember what it is, uh, steps of like what makes a, a high performing business unit in, in no matter what it was. And it was some stuff that makes sense, but some really good ones that I found was it doesn't matter what industry you're in, it doesn't matter if it's a fast moving or old one. The best performing units did it for a couple of reasons. The two biggest ones that always stick out to me were was one was their relationship with their first level manager. Like, so it doesn't matter how awesome your CEO is. If your manager sucks or you have a bad relationship, you're going to have a hard time. That's going to be a bad performing business unit. And so I looked at that both as me looking up the line, but also how do I become a good manager down the line? And then the second was you don't treat all your employees the same. So the idea that we're all should get treated the same way is ridiculous. And so don't spend your time on the C and D performers trying to make them Bs or Cs. Spend the time on your As and try to make them A pluses. All right. Spend the time on your B pluses trying to make them A minuses because that uplift, it's an 80-20 Pareto thing. And so really that was kind of very eye-opening for me. And it's how I treat my life, right? I don't spend all my time. I'm a strength in my, you know, focus on my strengths, not try to shore up my weaknesses. I mean, get them to the point where they're not deficiencies, but, you know, you're going to do much better turning a 90 into a 95 than you will turning a 70 into an 80 even. Sales tuners, if you'd like to check out Damien's suggestion of first break all the rules for free, head on over to salestuners.com slash book. And there you can sign up for a 30 day free trial of audible and browse their over 150,000 titles. Again, that's salestuners.com slash book. Damien, what's something you believe that nearly no one agrees with you on? Um, there's no such thing as work-life balance. It doesn't exist. I, I think that uh, I've I've always had more fun, uh, and I've always had more success when I blend the two together. I want to work with people I like, and I want to like the people I work with. Um, so I routinely blur those lines, and everyone tells me I'm wrong, and I love the life I live. So there you go. What's the biggest piece of advice that you have for all the sales tuners out there grinding today? 
So it's an attitude one, um, and it's a it's a great cliche one, but it's a it's a guiding principle, you know, from the earliest days to even today, uh, and that's you know some will, some won't. Who cares? Who's next? Uh, you have to not get caught up on the losses. You've got to just keep on driving through, you know. And and there's a bunch of different cliche ways to say in sales, right? You know, but the reality is, is you have to make decision to keep on picking up that phone, keep on knocking that door, keep on sending that email, you know, keep on asking for the order, whatever it is. You have to understand it. And when it's a no, okay, it's okay. You know, it's learn from it and move on. I'm gonna get you out of here on this one, Damian. How could someone find you or connect with you if they wanted to after the show? Email. I'm an email guy. So it's Damien at leadfuse.co. That's D-A-M-I-A-N at L-E-A-D-F-U-Z-E dot co. Damien, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. From the few minutes we spent together before starting the interview all the way until the very end, I loved how personable and tactical Damien was. I kid you not when I say I had six takeaways for this one and had to figure out how to cut it down to just three. So here they are. Number one. All interest is self-interest. Knowing your prospects is a good place to start, but often it helps to dig deeper. It helps to understand what motivates people and what makes them tick. It helps to remember that all interest is self-interest. What does that mean for you? People buy emotionally and then rationalize their purchase intellectually after the fact. You have to get them excited or upset about something to truly move them. Number two, question everything. As soon as something becomes an accepted and widely used best practice, chances are its shelf life has already expired. For example, all the cute subject lines or cold email templates you can find online were awesome the first five times a prospect saw them. What are you doing today? What are you testing right now? Even if everything is going great and you're beating quota, what should you be questioning to see if you could be even better? And number three, niche down until it hurts. It's not possible to serve too small of a niche. If you really want to find success in sales, become the X for Y guy, i.e. the CRM for dog groomers in hot weather states. Okay, while that may be an exaggeration, finding the common characteristics of the people that buy from you also makes you become so good and so understood in a space that it becomes very easy to replicate. That's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions you'd like me to ask our guest, please tweet at me at SalesTuners or shoot me an email, jim at SalesTuners.com. Be sure to sign up for our email list where we send out expanded content and previews of upcoming guests. All right. I hope to see you next week. Until then, let's make it rain. Thanks for listening to Sales Tuners. Stay up to date at www.salestuners.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. And they stay there.